Today's guest is a returning guest and always the best kind because that means they have so much more to share with us. She is Sherry Loeb and she has been a healthcare professional for 37 years. After receiving her bachelor's degree in biology and medical technology, she continued her studies and received a BSN in 1983. Sherry has extensive nursing experience in a wide range of disciplines and is currently serving as clinical research nurse in the Rush University Department of Transplant Surgery. In 2011, her husband, a Joint Commission officer, was diagnosed with advanced metastatic prostate cancer. When his condition worsened in early 2013, she became his caregiver, personal navigator, and ombudsman. Even after almost 30 years as a registered nurse, our fractured healthcare system was an eye-opening experience, and her goal was to make sure that the care her husband received was safe, high-quality, patient-centered, compassionate, and evidence-based as long as possible. Since her husband passed away in October of 2013, Sherry has spoken at numerous national healthcare conferences about their healthcare journey. In addition to her full-time position at Rush, she also serves on the Patient Family Advisory Council for Quality and Safety at MedStar, a large hospital system in Baltimore, Maryland. Sherry has also graciously agreed to contribute to our new charity book, Anthology, coming out in early spring, late summer, titled Highway to Heart, Humor, and Honesty in Healthcare. And I can't imagine a better voice to include, so it's with great honor to welcome you back to the show, Sherry. Thank you so much, Pat. I am also honored to be included with such an elite group that I hear you're going to be interviewing. Oh. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I was so pleased to include your voice as well because I so enjoyed our conversation. Although it was several years ago, I still refer to it often during my speaking events because you have quite a lot to say. And so I want to start, if you don't mind, with your and your husband's work because it revolved around improving patient safety and the patient experience. Yet both he and you and your family experienced the good and not so good aspects of the healthcare system. So if you would please briefly share the story just as a way to set the stage for our conversation today. Sure. So when Jared was diagnosed. He, at the time, was an executive at the Joint Commission. So he was very versed in science and safety and quality, as that was one of his main charges at the Joint Commission. He was a scientist by background and extremely intelligent when it came to science, yet he wasn't a true healthcare professional. He was a PhD. So when he was diagnosed, it was a true shocker. And having me as the spouse, you know, I was the on sharp end of the healthcare for many, many years. And so we teamed up, so to speak. And at the time of his diagnosis, I made him two promises. And one was that he would never go anywhere by himself. And I joke when I say that because I did allow him to go to the store and things like that. But as far as any healthcare events, you know, appointments. He was never allowed to go by himself. And I also promised him that I would not let him die from a medical error. People may say, well, why does that happen very often? And it does. And when he passed away, I was happy that I was able to fulfill those two things. But in addition, I promised him that I would help to continue the voice of how prevalent medical errors are. But not only that, just what we found through our journey was 
the lack of compassionate care, the lack of patient-centered care, the lack of shared decision-making, the lack of patient and family engagement. And, you know, he was fortunate not to have a true medical error. He had some near misses, but again, I was there and I was able to prevent them. But the communication sometimes was just so fractionated and that is to me the number one reason, and I think a lot of people would agree, where these medical errors come from, and that's from lack of communication. Communication errors and the lack of communication can be from physician to physician, from physician to nurse, nurse to nurse, healthcare provider to patient or family. And what I like to explain, and, you know, it's easier with a slide and you see it in front of you, is when the healthcare provider is talking to the patient or family, kind of like the old telephone game, they think of it as a straight line. But what the family is hearing is just all curled up lines. So they're not hearing the same thing. And it's just a different language. And no fault of the healthcare provider, but they don't understand that the patient doesn't speak that same language. And it's kind of like when you go to a car mechanic to have your car done, you don't know the questions to ask. And that's why having an advocate with you who is familiar with healthcare and knows what to ask is so vitally important. Yes, the whole health literacy concept. And I think that happens within any profession where you've got lingo and jargon. And when you're speaking to your peers, you use these words that everybody understands. But then when you get out in public and you're dealing with a customer or a client or a patient, that's when, you know, those words need to disappear and, and need to be spoken in a language that the person you're speaking to can understand. Correct. For example, the treatments that the physicians are proposing to you need to be explained. And what I have seen and what I found with Jared's treatments were people don't or physicians don't want to fail. So they're going to keep prescribing and prescribing different treatments, but sometimes they're going to miss the point that are we looking at quality of life or are we looking at quantity of life? And there's a really, really big difference. You know, physicians don't want to give up. They've gone into this profession to help people. And for them to say, I have nothing else, you know, and, and perhaps this is the time to put you on hospice is very difficult for them. Yet it needs to be done, but it's not something they are taught in medical school. It's not something they're taught in residency. And it's only, I think, sometimes when they have experienced it personally that they understand that. And, you know, they're not miracle workers. And I know that when we started our trip down this road, we knew the outcome. We absolutely knew the outcome. And I think that kind of helped put things in perspective. But not everyone knows that. And sometimes when people are diagnosed with a particular illness, they do hope for the best. But there's times when they need to be truthful. Again, it goes back to communication. And you say being truthful, and that hits the whole honesty. And I'm not talking about somebody out and out lying right. to, a, to a patient, but just to be honest, to say, 
look, we're getting to the end here. You probably only have a few days, you know, or weeks or months. What can we do to make this journey better? I remember when my mom was just days from passing away, I talked with the doctor on the phone and he alluded, but he never really came out and said, hey, get over there right now because you only have a short amount of time. Not that he could predict that, but he obviously, right. but he obviously knew. And so that's where that component of honesty comes in. It is. It's honesty and it's humility because it's hard for them. And I know I almost want to plug palliative care because I think palliative care has done a disservice because it's always explained to you as palliative care slash hospice. Mm -hmm. And they're so, so different. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I like to say that palliative care, we've all experienced. We've had a headache. We've taken Tylenol. That's palliative care. We're helping the symptoms, but a lot of physicians are reticent to suggest palliative care. And I know that the palliative care physician we had, I cannot speak highly enough. We, I still talk to him to this day and, and what the suggestions that he made in addition to helping to make Jared comfortable were something that I can never go back if I had not done. And they were priceless. I mean, he said, when we think it's not that much longer, move up celebrations if you can. Do things sooner that you would have done later that you may not be able to do. And and as I may have mentioned, you know, my older daughter is a physician and my husband would have been able to hood her at her medical school graduation, which he wasn't able to make. We held a hooding ceremony early. Aww. That was so important. I would have never thought of that. It's important for the honesty. It's vital. So why is that so difficult for a physician to feel comfortable to either have those kind of conversations or suggest palliative care or just to be honest to say, hey, we're running out of time here. Why don't you do some of the things that you would do sooner rather than later? Why is that? Why does that not happen? My personal feeling, and you know, I'm not an oncologist. I'm not a palliative care physician. My honest feeling is that it makes the physician feel they failed. They want to keep trying everything they can. And if they're saying, you know what, we're coming to that and we can't do that, it's kind of saying, well, I failed, but they didn't fail because physicians are not miracle workers and they can't save everyone. And so to involve another specialty into this group that's going to help, to me, just, you know, raises the physician to me. It doesn't say I'm giving up. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, I almost think it's a failure not to say and, and not to be a part of that than to put out false hopes or just not address it. Right. In one of my early presentations, I was saying, you know, giving the whole um, story of what we went through and I said that, you know, he had his first chemo and then he failed chemo and, and I actually was stopped. Someone raised their hand and they said, you know, I, I don't mean to correct you, but at the hospital I come from, we don't say the patient failed chemo. Mm. What we say is the chemo failed the patient. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you're so right mm -hmm. because the patient didn't do anything wrong. 
And it's the same as the physician. The physician didn't do anything wrong if the chemo didn't work. They're not miracle workers. They give yourself a break as a physician. Exactly. They are not miracle workers. And it's really tough. You try all you can, but sometimes it just, it doesn't work. Well, I hope those physicians or nurses hearing this and reading our book come to realize that it's okay not to have every answer and just to be, just to be there. I agree. I agree. So in these last few years, you've been working in the patient safety movement, patient advocacy movement. Have you seen improvements in patient safety? What have you been seeing? It really depends where you are. I've seen some improvement, but what frightens me is, you know, we are promoting and getting awards for the electronic health record, but that's not the be-all, end-all. And Being a nurse for as many years as I have been, by using the electronic medical records, healthcare providers tend to forget that there's actually a person behind that little icon on the computer. And in the past, we would walk into the room, we would sit down, we would look at the patient, we'd listen to the patient. And I know as a nurse, just sitting and talking to the patient, not even examining them, You can find out so much more than just sometimes from a lab test or an exam. And that's that's what we're missing. And the physicians are given so many more patients, so much less time to spend with a patient that they're forgetting that just because we have this EMR, that is not going to solve the problem. And I was listening to one of your other interviews and they were talking about medication reconciliation, which ideally that's an amazing, amazing thing. But the way the electronic health records are set up, you go in the electronic health record and there's a little button that you push medication reconciliation and it's done. But ideally you're not doing anything. And that's that's where you get into errors because you're not really reconciling anything. You're not talking to anyone. Oh, are you still on this medication or was that discontinued somewhere else and it wasn't taken off there? People are relying on this computer program too much and they're forgetting that there's really a person there and it's you can't rely on that. So I think the numbers may have gotten better, but, you know, the quest for harm to go to zero, I'm not sure if we're ever going to get there. I really, I really don't. I think anytime you put something in between the patient and the provider, obviously things are not going to improve. I did a whole show on that where I said, I don't even think um, after my recent doctor appointment that my doctor knows what color eyes I have. There's just so much diagnostic value in human eye-to-eye contact. As you said, just to sit and talk to a person, you can glean so much more information, as you said, versus even even the uh, results of a test. So thank you for addressing that. I didn't know we were going to go there today, it's, but I appreciate that. It's, it's, very, it's very true. There was a story I read about a physician who was doing a study on 
what was actually in the record and getting records on old patients. And he got a record on a patient that was saying that, you know, both the lower extremities were intact, pulses were normal, etc. Well, the patient did not have both of his lower extremities, but everything was so straightforward and you've got pre-filled things in the electronic health records. So if you're not paying attention, you're copying and pasting. Mm -hmm. And and sometimes that copy and paste is referred to as the evil twin because you will enter, you'll type something on, you know, this is day one of your antibiotics, and then the next day you'll copy and paste. You'll, so you will be on day one of your antibiotic for seven days. Mm-hmm. And it's very frustrating when you're trying to read a record and reading the same thing over and over and over again. You know, it's okay to have a skeleton mm-hmm. in the record, but you shouldn't be able to copy everything. Oh, wow. wow. Let this so, be a warning to patients who are listening to really query and inquire each time they have a doctor's appointment to say, hey, is this medication I'm no longer taking, it, does it still show up in my record? Right. And, that's, and the fact that you brought that up to question, and I know as a nurse and I would have patients, you know, occasionally question me and they would say, you know, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I, you know, I, I don't want to question you. And my response would be, if you can't question me, there's something wrong. And if I'm giving you a medication or telling you you're going for a test and I can't answer you what the medication is for, why you're taking it or why you're going for a test, then you shouldn't do it because that's where errors are made. You need to know exactly why you're taking something, what you're taking, and that that's where errors happen. You know, here's your pills. Well, well, what are they? Well, they're that's what you're supposed to take. Well, no. Tell me what it is. Absolutely. So, it's important. I was going to ask you a question. I had it written down, actually. Does patient safety suffer because of people or because of systems? It's both. You know, the the one error that happened to Jared that I caught, so, you know, it was a near miss. It was a outpatient medication that the palliative care physician had written for him. And it's why he was, while he was getting his chemo and we were sitting and talking to the physician and she said, this is what I'm going to write. I'm like, okay, great. And I went to the pharmacy to pick it up. And I mean, it was great. The pharmacist then showed me the medication and said, okay, this is the dose. This is what you're going to give. And I said, that's not the right dose. And she goes, oh, yes, it is. And I said, no, it isn't. And so she goes and gets the prescription. She goes, oh, you're right. So to me, the system there was here we have an outpatient pharmacy with one pharmacist. No one to double-check her work. Now, when I was an inpatient nurse and we gave any high-risk med, I never gave it. In fact, we weren't supposed to without another nurse double-checking it. So she didn't have anyone else there to double-check it. Yes, she was showing me the med and showing me how to take it, but not double-checking the dosing. So we met with the head of pharmacy, and I said, you know, I've got a great idea for you. And it won't cost you anything. I said, your pharmacist is already showing the patient the medication and how to take it. What she should do is have that prescription next to her Mm -hmm. and say, okay, here's what your doctor wrote. Here's the medication, et cetera. And his response was, 
I've been in this field for 35 years. I don't need your suggestion. Oh. So in that case, it was the system. And as Jared said, this pharmacist did not come, the one who was in the pharmacy who made the error, did not come to work planning to make an error. But the system was set up in that she did. It, the script couldn't be entered in the electronic health record because it wasn't working. So it was a handwritten. So there were so many things that set her up to make this error. So it's, um, it's a combination. It is definitely a combination. And I've seen that in the hospital where sometimes you just have people who shouldn't be doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's just bad systems. You know, Sherry, I find this is such a common conversation, actually. Many people ask, if I question my doctor or ask him or her to wash their hands or before touching me or what the medications are, will they give me less care? And I think we all know that the answer is no. But what can be done to get past this fear? You know, it's like when you're at a restaurant and you send cold food back, you always wonder, is someone going to spit in your soup? Um, right. You know, how how do we get to reach people to say, it's okay, nobody's going to, you know, harm you because you asked a question? But it is a very common concern. It, it is a very common concern. And I think you have to feel confident enough or your advocate has to feel confident enough. And ask it nicely. Don't say, did you wash your hands? You know, but say, you know, I'm concerned or I know I've heard all about this and I'm sorry, I didn't see you wash your hands. Can you wash your hands? Or, you know, I'm sorry to question you, but I need to understand. And if the physician or nurse or healthcare provider gets upset at you for asking it, that's a big red flag that maybe you need a different healthcare provider. You know, what I say, too, is you need to have someone with you to question and, and also to remember. But when you are faced with a diagnosis or you are ill and you're in the hospital, it goes in one ear and out the other. And having someone with you to either write down what they're saying or come prepared with questions. When I go for a doctor's appointment if, and I know I'm going to have questions, I write them down in advance because when you're there you may forget, you know, what you were going to say. So having those things written down beforehand are important. That's critical. It's just not being afraid to speak up. And and I think that really prevents some errors. Thank you for, for such wonderful advice. And we're going to begin to wrap up, sadly, um, even though I have a lot more I'd like to talk with you about. But is there anything that we missed that you think thought you wanted to share today? The, the only thing is it, what people need to realize and healthcare professionals need to realize is it's really hard for a healthcare professional to understand what the patient is going through unless they've been in their shoes. Healthcare professionals cannot have all the procedures done to them beforehand. You know, they, they can't have Foley's, they can't have IVs, they can't have illnesses. There was a very famous book uh, written by a neurosurgeon who was diagnosed when he was in, I believe, his residency, Paul Kalanithi. And he wrote, you know, the tricky part of the illness is as you go through it, your values are constantly changing. And, you know, his idea was not saving lives, but guiding a patient or family. And then, you know, you really don't understand something 
until you've gone through it yourself. And and so sometimes you have to step back and try and put yourself in the patient's shoes and realize how hard it is to be so vulnerable, lying in this bed, not understanding what all of these strangers are doing to you. And I think it makes you a better physician. So, and there is the crux of heart and honesty in healthcare. Correct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have to have heart and honesty to be in healthcare. Well, Sherry, where can folks go to contact you? I'd be more than happy to give you, you know, my direct email that they certainly can contact me. I'd be happy to talk to them. I do have, you know, a lot of presentation that I've given that really tells the story and talks about safety and quality and patient engagement, etc. And that's just my personal email, and that would be sherryloeb at gmail.com. S-H-E-R-R-I-L-O-E-B at Correct. gmail.com. Any final words before we head out regarding heart humor, honesty, and healthcare? I think every single one of them is crucial. Without heart and honesty, you need it. And, you know, sometimes you need a little humor, too. Adding a little humor to things really makes a difference. I agree. I agree. Sherry, thank you for sharing you and for being a part of this project. I just so appreciate you and all that you do. Thank you so much. You are very welcome, Pat. It's been my honor and pleasure. Listen to Pat Rulo and Speak Up and Stay Alive Radio. Stay safe from little-known healthcare and hospital hazards. To learn more, go to speakupandstayalive.com. That's speakupandstayalive.com.